Hi, and welcome to another episode of The Leadership Enigma. Now, you know you can find us on all your major podcast platforms. And of course, now you can find us on our new YouTube channel. We are still cranking through about 70 to 80 backlog episodes. Phenomenal stuff. Please like, subscribe so that we can keep you fully up to date with all the new material that's coming out. So new episode, new week. We all want to have an impact in our lives and the leadership enigma is changing in that we're going to be exploring now more and more the human being, not just the human doing. And so many of my guests have achieved incredible things in their life, but they've also had to battle through struggles and work out for themselves how things work and what doesn't work and how do you overcome. And we all want to be involved in those moments that matter, whether that's in our personal life, whether that's in our business life. And communication is at the very heart of that. You know, I started my life as a barrister where communication was at the heart of it. And I remember the anxiety and stress associated with it. And you've only got to look at any poll as regards how do people feel about communicating. And there was one poll where it was people's number one fear. In fact, six places above death. And we were just chuckling earlier that there was, I think, the Woody Allen quote that if you're asked to do the eulogy, you'd rather be in the box. So I need us to have a good chat with Richard Newman. This is the second time Richard's now been on the pod, so I'm delighted to welcome him. He's the founder of Body Talk and author of Lift Your Impact. So do not miss this one because we're going to dig into how do you actually recognize and deal with some of the fear, the anxiety and stress that is in the way for so many when it comes to the ability to communicate and connect. Come back to me just after this. You're listening to The Leadership Enigma, powered by Transform Performance International, a podcast for the insatiably curious to explore the power of human-centered leadership to create real momentum for positive and sustainable change. Whether you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or corporate executive, each week we speak to global experts, academics, rising stars, ambitious upstarts, and disruptors as we discover that success leaves clues. Now, here's your host, Adam Pacifico. Richard, it's a huge warm welcome to the Leadership Enigma. How are you? I'm really good, yeah. How are you? Thanks so much for coming back. Oh, look, I've got to ask you, what do you think of the new studio? It's, it's really fabulous, yeah. I was saying before that, um, I remember before it had sort of these smaller screens and uh, the big gaming chairs, and uh, I think it's great. It's really modern and fabulous. The gaming chairs were kind of fun, weren't they? <laughs> yeah. So th this, is, this is the first episode, actually, of the new look studio uh, for the Leadership Enigma. So, uh, And you were here before me, so I, <laughs> I love the the fact that I, I turned up and you were already sat, uh, ready to go. Um, look, Richard, give us a little bit of a background about why you're so passionate and, and doing so much work globally now in relation to this aspect of body talk, lifting your impact, communication skills. Where's that passion and drive coming from? Yeah, so for, for me, communication was always something that I found was a challenge. So even going, going all the way back to when I was four, nearly five years old, we moved house, we went to, uh, to uh, then had to start a new school. And I remember that day, one of my sort of strongest memories of the day is that I was sitting at this tiny little table, you know, like you get in sort of uh, infant school. And there were kids around me on the table, and I was trying to connect with them. And they were sort of turning away from me and ignoring me. And I felt like I was almost in a glass bubble and just didn't know how to connect with anybody else. And I felt incredibly alone. And uh, it was sort of years later that I started to understand 
my parents had always said that I, you know, I was a shy child. I later understood I, I'm an introvert, but it was many years later that I was diagnosed autistic. And so I can now reflect back and think, okay, that was part of the challenges I was having. But uh, by the end of sort of my teenage years, I got really fascinated with communication and started reading a lot of books on the subject. So in the end, I read over 200 books on the subject of body language, wow. tone of voice, uh, breathing, storytelling skills, stage presence, everything that I could find to really understand what I was missing. And, and to me, the first book I read on body language was like the holy grail where I thought, oh, this is, this is it. This is the bit that I just never understood before. And that then led me to when, when all my friends were heading off to university and I was expected to go there as well. I said, I'm actually not going to do that. I'm going to go overseas and teach English. And what happened was I ended up going to the foothills of the Himalayas. As you do. As you do. <laughs> why not? I think other people were sort of doing a gap year in France or something. And I ended up in this little Tibetan monastery where I was teaching English to the monks. And the big challenge when I got there is that they didn't speak a word of English. So they spoke Tibetan, Nepali and Hindi. Right. And I spoke a bit of French and a bit of German, which wasn't especially useful. And so I had to use body language and tone of voice just to connect with them. And, and I discovered this because initially I sat down with a table with a, a cup of Tibetan tea with them in their monastery kitchen, a bit like, you know, I'm sitting here with you. And we sort of looked at each other like, well, how's this going to work? How are we going to live together for six months if we cannot communicate? Yeah. And we just started to realize that non-verbally we were understanding each other. And uh, I spent then six months at this monastery where I was teaching the monks, uh, usually in the evening when they'd come back from doing prayers in the day, and uh, usually without any electricity, we're doing it through candle lights, and I was really cut off from the rest of the world. We had a phone that maybe worked five minutes a week. This was before texts and mobile phones, and we didn't have the internet, so I just had them to connect not, with. Not that we're showing your age at all, Richard, when you say <laughs> exactly, that. Exactly, yeah. This is this the 1990s, to give people a perspective. And, and I loved it, and I then I worked at a local school there as well, and I came back sort of profoundly moved by how much we can connect with people non-verbally. I then studied acting at a London acting school for three years to learn more about how you sit and how you stand and how you breathe in a way that impacts someone on stage with you yes. and also that it impacts an audience. And then um, I, the, the way I got into teaching communication was bizarrely through my hairdresser. So my hairdresser, he was cutting my hair one day and he said, what are, you, what are you doing? What are you interested in? And I talked to him about the work I'd done as a teacher and the acting I'd studied and, and all the books I was reading. And he said, if I give you a free haircut, would you teach my hairdressers uh, how to communicate? And I said, I, I don't know how to do that. I've never done that. He said, well, you, you'll work it out. Come in next week. And so I, I came back and I spent a couple of hours teaching them what I knew. Yeah. And then they said, come back again. And then pretty soon I got a phone call from the head of an engineering company. And he said, uh, I've just had my hair cut today. And my hairdresser was saying, you're the, the number one communication coach in the country. Would you teach my All engineering All happens company? in hairdressers. <laughs> it does, yeah. So word of mouth uh, advertising was happening for me from there. And so you know, I gradually built a team. And now we're at the point of... There's 20 people on the team and we've trained over 120,000 people all over the world and sort of flying wherever we need to go. Well, I need to unpack some of that. That's incredible. I hope you went back and you said thank you to the hairdresser, by oh, the yeah. way, who, who was actually the <laughs> catalyst for the entire career. I, I really did. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, um, let me go backwards. I, I do so often. I think we've actually got a picture, haven't we, of you with the Tibetan monks, uh, which we may be able to put up on the screen. Uh, but And... 
So tell me, what's this picture? What are, what are we looking at here? So uh, this it's is a me. younger you. <laughs> it's a younger you. Yeah, younger me. Uh, I'm stood here next to Paljor, uh, right. who was the head monk of the monastery, and uh, you can see how old the picture is because both of us have our eyes shut. So th this is before digital photography. We didn't know until you know you eventually developed the, the photos back then. And uh, where I'm standing is just behind me is the main temple for, yes. for the monks, and just above my head, sort of up on the left there, was where my room was, uh, which meant that because I was living in a room that was directly above the temple at five o'clock every morning I didn't need an alarm clock I, they, they would all go into the temple and they'd start going and then hitting instruments they never had any lessons on their instruments they just knew they were supposed to hit them and blow into them uh, this was your alarm clock this is my alarm clock every day for six months yeah but that's I mean and, you know Paljo is a good representative uh, of them there uh, that they were always smiling they yeah. just had this incredible joy for life which which really stayed with me to, you know, going, going through the challenges we've all been through the last few years of, um, you know, needing to have a positive mindset in, in challenging times. They really showed me uh, how to do that. I think we've got, if, we, is there, if there's a second picture, there's a picture of this. Is there the, we go. This is the classroom. Right. Okay. So the classroom was the kitchen. Okay. And uh, these brilliant monks I was working with, they ranged in age from sort of age 10 up to age 65. And uh, yeah, we did these lessons in the evening. This would have been, I think the room is lit up there, probably through the flash I was using on my camera and some candles that we had uh, around the room. And so I was teaching them the very basics of how to have a conversation. And so I would teach them through body language. I was going to say, without actually being able to communicate properly. <laughs> That's it, yeah. So, so I, I would do things like, uh, one example, I was trying to teach them prepositions at one point and so I did it physically and so I would go uh, up down into onto over under out in front behind next to opposite round and round about now you have to watch this on the YouTube channel so I can see what Richard did <laughs> That's it, yeah a lot of gestures involved and then I sort of write it on the board which one of the monks is pointing at in, right. uh, in the picture here uh, and so uh, I then helped them understand the word they'd be able to write it so I was helping their written and spoken communication but it was, it was a brilliant experience. experience let me ask you this you, you said a couple of things which also I want to pick up on one is that you're an introvert mm. and you know I have some amazing people at work who are introverted mm. and sometimes introverts feel that they're they're second fiddle to the extroverts yeah the big and bold you know extroverts in the in an office place with and the introverts and sometimes missed or introverts sometimes feel that they've got to be the extrovert so what mm. made an introvert want to be in the public speaking and communications arena is yeah. that in some ways the, the the last thing that maybe an introvert would want to be involved in yeah, I think for, for me, it all came from a sense of service. Like The reason I went to this, this monastery is I wanted to be of service to other people who were less fortunate than me or, or didn't know something that I, that I knew. Where's uh, that coming from, though? That, that passion for service. I, I think it's just something that I've that I've always had that that I, I've enjoyed being able to help other people do things, and so I mean even when I was at school before before this experience, uh, I remember when um, I joined the basketball team when I was about twelve years old, yeah. and we got annihilated by the other school, and I still remember the score. It was eighty-one points to eighteen, oh, so close. it's like the numbers yeah. were reversed. <laughs> and so um, they, we found out that that school had had a year's worth of of teaching. Yeah. 
on basketball before we met them. Uh, But that wasn't a provision at our school. So I thought, oh, I can help the next generation of basketball players at our school because I can teach them when they're in their first year because we only got to play basketball in our second year. And so I started teaching them so they would be prepared to overcome that sort of uh, challenge. And I liked that. And then when I was teaching uh, English to these monks, I loved doing that. This other picture we've got here is at the local school where this is when I said, form an orderly queue and, uh, you know, I'll start to... uh, mark your homework and then they just ra- <laughs> cause this sort of rabble like chaos. an autograph signing session to <laughs> it me looks I, like that, yeah. I think with that I mean, uh, it's, it's, I'm keen as well to know was this nature or nurture for you because mm. is this just something that is inside of you or does this come from, from pe- I'm turning this into a therapy session aren't I but <laughs> I, I'm really keen to understand where that, that early passion for service has come mm. from yeah, it's, it's a good question. I, I think for me, it's an instinct that I've that I've always had. And so my, my approach towards communication, it, it, rather than it being sort of a desire to be uh, a, a, on a big stage, it's very much more a sense of how do I serve as many people as possible? Well, to do that, I need to be in front of more people. And so therefore, being on a big stage would achieve that goal. And I also find that helps me with a sense of overcoming self-consciousness because I'm not there thinking about what am I doing and how am I being and what are they thinking? thinking of me I'm very much thinking how are they right now what do they need from Audience me right focused. now uh, and yeah so how do I get into that mindset and that that's always uh, let me up there's probably partly now that I'm thinking about it uh, I remember you know early days when there was like school plays and so on yes. uh, there was a great encouragement from my parents to like put yourself forward and, and do well and uh, in the nativity when I was like five years old uh, I played the innkeeper and my parents to this day will say I was the best person in the whole thing you know forget you know people that's what playing. parents do Richard, <laughs> exactly. let me tell you. so there must be a part of my mind who, that thought okay yeah be, being up in front of an audience is a good thing that's that's something that you get praise for I want to talk about something else as well you mentioned uh, autism yeah and again some people may be listening or watching this and thinking autism and communication they might mm. think there is a disconnect and of course we're talking about a scale yeah um i was diagnosed probably about two years ago with chronic adhd and actually mm. mild autism but again mm. that doesn't manifest itself in relation to issues around communication yeah so help me understand your thoughts around the neurodiversity piece yeah. and the ability to communicate or connect because mm. it's becoming a bigger theme now for organizations all over the world yeah. and actually trying to embrace neurodiversity as well as a superpower. Yeah. And I know there are a lot of young talent as well who are still nervous about finding out or even sharing that they are neurodiverse in some ways. Mm. And, and I think I've become big and bold about it and I know you are too. Mm. So tell me a little bit about you know your your journey or some of your reflections ab- about this. Yeah, well, I think the the most important thing uh, for me to state is you know certainly I see it from my perspective yep. on this that autism to me is not a disability. It is a different ability. It is a different way of seeing situations. Yeah. And so for me, I've seen this as a huge advantage that when I if I want to coach people on communication, I come at it from a completely different lens to a neurotypical it's your superpower. person. Yeah, so I I I, I almost sort of see communication as an outsider looking in thinking okay how do these neurotypical people communicate what's working what's not and how can I do uh, how can I teach people what works here and what doesn't and so it's very much a different way of seeing things and and there's lots of things to say that you know uh, I'm more familiar with autism than other aspects of neurodiversity but that it can be incredibly powerful for organizations I think it was Chase Bank who said that uh, their autistic employees are up to 40% more productive than other people doing the same 
same role. Right. So, so embracing neurodiversity, I think, is incredibly important. And, and what it gives you is when you've got people, uh, when there's neurodiversity in an organization, you've got different people looking at things from different perspectives. And so, therefore, you're much more likely to find solutions to challenges because they're going to come at, come at it totally from a different angle. Uh, so, you know, from my case, it, it hasn't been something that's held me back. Yeah. Uh, and so I'd encourage people to embrace it if it is the case for themselves and also to be understanding of uh, if you're in an environment, th this is an important thing to be aware of too, if you're in an environment where there are some people who are neurotypical and some people who are, who are autistic, it's been found that autistic people can communicate really well with each other because they see the world the same way and they see communication the same way. Right. Neurotypical people can communicate really well together, uh, hopefully most of the time, but it's when you try and have communication between neurotypical and autistic people that suddenly there can be a disconnect. And it's not because either person doesn't understand how to communicate. It's just methods of communication. So there needs to be an acceptance of that rather than a sense of sort of right or wrong. So this creates an, an even more interesting layer or challenge around communication now in the workplace. I think we're about to have, what, five generations in the workplace now for the very first time ever. Wow. Yeah. And I, I can't ignore the focus when I introduced this episode of the stress and anxiety around communicating and public yeah. speaking and, and yeah. I know here's a picture of you doing one of your <laughs> yeah. and I've been to one of your talks and they're fabulous and there were a couple of hundred of us lawyers in the room at that time and they're always a difficult crowd <laughs> uh, and so this I'm fascinated by this so let's talk a little bit about the stress and anxiety you know I, I alluded to the poll uh, and we know that people are super anxious about communicating in public um, yeah. my wife is incredibly uh, bright, incredibly confident, but would die a thousand deaths if she felt she had to talk publicly mm. to a large audience. So how can we help people? Before we get into the kind of, you know, what one can do and how one can do something, talk to me a little bit about what you've discovered about the stress and anxiety that people suffer about communication. And, yeah. and you know, add into that, you know, you've now just talked about being introvert, being neurodiverse. And so we're each unique to this. Yeah. But what are some of your thoughts about being able to deal with this. Yeah, well, I think part of what's kept my passion alive for, it's been 23 years now that I've been running my, my training company. And, and the big thing that I'm, I've always been passionate about is helping people like, like your wife, where they've, they, you know, you've got people who are brilliant. They're very knowledgeable, very experienced, and their voice is needed in the world. Their voice is needed on a stage. It's needed to drive or lead an organization or a yes. country in some, uh, some situations where I, I'm determined to make sure that it's not just the loudest voice in the room that becomes a, a leader or that the, the people decide to agree with. We've got to make sure that everybody has the opportunity to find their voice. And I've had to go on a very long journey to get to a point where yeah. I could very comfortably get on stage where, uh, if I think back um, recently, I was in Chicago and I was speaking at this event. It's at the Hilton Hotel. They've got these massive like ballrooms. I forget how many thousands of square feet it is. And I was up there doing a session, I think, for a couple of hours. And at one point, two people from the front row, they came up to me. I'd set an activity for the room to do. They came up and they said, can you explain how you look so chilled in front of this audience? Like, we, I don't understand how you're doing that. <laughs> I said, OK, well, I'll teach it after we've done the activity. So there's a series of uh, act, uh, activities I've given for myself to overcome the anxiety, the fear that I used to uh, to have to get to a place where I can go and really enjoy it. Yeah. And so one of the first things around that that I talk to people about is giving yourself internal validation before you get on the stage. So, so one of the fears that people have is if they get up in front of a room of people or if they get up in front of a very large audience, you are, by standing when everyone else is sitting, you're separating yourself from the tribe. And there is uh, this... 
uh, instinct, if you like, that kicks in that says, if they turn against me, I'm finished. Like if they came at me with bats and sticks, like I, I'm never going to survive. Is a fight or flight syndrome almost kicking yeah, in? Yeah, exactly. So that's a survival sense of I am in a threatening position here or a threatened position. And so uh, that's when we are seeking that sense of validation from them. So if you want to get past that, you need to have internal validation before you go on the stage. And so the way that you do this, and this was proven uh, by study, a study done by Cresswell and Sherman back right. in 2015, where they did something using the protocol of the triasocial stress test. And they did a series of experiments. Okay. But what they showed essentially, in essence, is that before a stressful situation, before you go to a job interview or to do a presentation, if you focus in on your core values, the principles that you want to live your life by, and you write like a, a page out in a notebook on what are those values and how have they guided you to be proud of decisions you've made in the past. You give yourself a huge amount of internal validation and you can, in the full version of this, they got people to do it for 15 minutes. Then when you go into an interview, they showed that the, the people who hadn't done that and they were put in a stressful situation, their adrenaline went up, their cortisol stress hormone went up, their heart rate went up yep. if they're put through a challenging situation. But if people had focused on their values, they got internal validation and they could go through a challenging situation with no difference to their adrenaline, their cortisol and their wow. heart rate. So they're focusing on that. So a way that people can do that because we have lots of values, lots of principles we live our life by, 20 or 30 maybe. And it's important not to have too many because you get uh, overwhelmed. So I like to focus just on three. Where okay. I think these are the top three values that I want to live my life by. And if you can, if you work on this, so if people do this as homework after the podcast, you write them down and then you get a code word for each of them that means something to you. So as an example, one of my values is to be a good father. and But what does that mean? It, it means something different to, to everybody. You, you're right. a father. Your meaning of that would be totally different to mine. So Very subjective. Uh, yeah, exactly. So I, I got a code word for myself, which is polar bears. Right. Uh, and the reason being that I have these two beautiful young kids. And w when they were younger, they invented this game called polar bears, where I get down on the carpet pretending to be the daddy polar bear. One gets on my back, one climbs underneath me, and we patrol around the house pretending to hunt for food and find shelter. And they're bonding with each other. They're learning life skills from me. I'm being present with them. It's everything I think about when I think being a good father. So the term polar bears then connects me with that sense of purpose, and it connects me with a sense of pride for all the moments that I've achieved that for them. And so when I'm feeling that, before I then go into a challenging situation, I've already got internal validation. I don't need to get it from somewhere else. And so it relieves that pressure of being in front of that tribe. Uh, people are, I'm assuming people are scared of being judged. Yeah. You stand on a stage or before 10, 1,000, 10,000, you're about to be judged. Yeah. Is that in some ways almost the antidote that you're talking about to that? Yeah, so, so I, I see that actually in, in two ways. So firstly, that's an antidote to caring about the judgment because you think, I, I really feel that I'm a good person with good intentions and yes. I have good intentions towards this audience. So how they judge it is not as relevant to me. So, but you need to go sort of internal before you get on the stage. But very importantly, when you're on the stage, you have to be external. You've got to be focused on them. And the way that I uh, coach people around this is to imagine that you're a surfer on the ocean. Okay. So the, the audience is the ocean. And the reason this is important is that you can go, you could prepare yourself to do an important presentation where you really want to motivate 
everybody and get everybody jumping up and down with joy about the sales targets or whatever it is. Uh, but when you arrive at the building or you start speaking to these people, you could notice that actually everybody is feeling a bit somber about something, maybe the, the previous speaker to you. And so much like a surfer on the ocean, you might want to go out into big choppy waves and have fun. And then you arrive and the, or, the ocean is dead still. So as a speaker, you have to be the surfer on that ocean and go, how does this feel right now? And get that sense from the room and then move what you're doing in terms of your actions, your behavior towards them based on what is actually there in front of you. So this that's is why meeting your audience where they are. That, that's it. And so you know, some people would over rehearse and just think, I'm going to go up there and I'm going to be really big or I'm going to go really serious. Oh, I I'm going to give them it this serious. way. <laughs> <regardless>. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so to think about how this has helped me in the past, to give you a clear example, I was working with Expedia going back a few years. Yep. It was a big event in Alicante and it was their sales kickoff meeting for Europe, I think it was. And uh, I arrive at the hotel. This is the night before the event. I arrive at the hotel, the taxi pulls up. And before I get out of the taxi, I'm thinking, what is that noise? Like, it's like people are, are having a rave in the hotel or something. And so I pay the guy, I start walking in, the noise gets louder and louder. As I get towards the bar, yeah. there's all these people who I suddenly realize are the people I'm going to speak to from Expedia. And they're blowing the roof off of this hotel because they're just so animated and excited. And that's very much the, the culture there. And I thought, okay, that's the ocean that I'm riding tomorrow. I need to be big. And I went in prepared for you know the, the the sort of choppiness of a joyful ocean and it was like exploding with the surf going everywhere and I thought oh I need to go even bigger in energy than I thought and so by the end you know it's, it's this huge uh, energy of emotion that we're all riding on together right. so so it's important to be able to do that and be externally focused because then you're not in your head and not thinking oh am, am I doing well you know is this going all right you're, you're really connected and present with them but that's after you've done the internal validation yes. piece yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, in relation to kind of people identifying the symptoms of stress and anxiety for them, is there mm. anything you can you can do to help us? Because people might say they get the clammy hands yeah. or that the throat is drying or they're, they're shaking in some way. I'm not saying it's the same for anyone, but again, any thoughts in relation to people identifying that they've got to deal with some kind of physiological reaction to the challenge? Yes, yes. So, so I've been through this so many times now, sort of you know, decades of going and working at events, which sort of gradually got easier for me as I picked up techniques. But what I would notice is sometimes I'd be sitting at the side of a conference room yep. and suddenly think, well, why am I not breathing? Hang on a second. That, that's not right. And I feel <laughs> One like of those I, essential things. Yeah, I can sort of feel my heart, heart starting to beat uh, faster in my chest and become aware of, oh, I like even without me thinking about it, I'm getting nervous about what I have to do in 20 yeah. minutes time. And so what I do is, is a check-in before every important event, whether it's, you know, speaking on stage or, or something else, I just do a little physical check-in. And the most important one for me that I check on is how is the tension in my stomach? Right. Because I've noticed that if I get tense about a situation, if I'm feeling stressed, my stomach starts to tense up. And the challenge that creates for you is it's then reducing your ability to breathe well. So yes. you can't do so much diaphragmatic breathing. And the instinct that then kicks off within the body is your body says, hang on a second, I'm having problems breathing. If I can't figure that out, if I stop breathing within a few minutes, I'm finished. And so anxiety starts to pick up, your heart rate's going, you're starting to have a hot sweat, and your, your body's trying to draw attention to the fact that your breathing is not working properly. And so what I used to do is think, oh, well, I, I'm sweating, so I, sh I should wipe the sweat away. But that's not where it's coming from. Right. So the first thing for me is always to think about the breathing. And importantly, this is going back to my days of studying as an actor. 
we were told that if you want to cry on cue, if you want to laugh on cue, if you want to have any kind of emotion on stage, you can change your state quickly through breathing. And I remember this particularly in a lesson that our head of uh, acting taught us, okay. where she said, because um, there was there was a lady uh, at our school who was she was doing a scene where at the end of one scene she had to be crying and then the next scene was supposed to be two years later and she's laughing and she's really happy and she just couldn't figure out how to do it it's like within sort of five seconds she had to shift and so she was coached to do it through the breath so if you think about it your breath is completely connected to your state so if you are surprised you gasp or if you're depressed you sigh and so your breath is connected to the emotion so if you change the breath you can actually change the emotion okay and so if you're feeling anxious before an interview uh, or before a, a speech or something, there's different things you can do with your breathing. My favoured way of changing my breathing that I've used for, for many years now is what people sometimes refer to as box breathing or square breathing. And the way that you do this is that you breathe in for five, Yes. you hold it for five to process the oxygen, you breathe out for five, nice and slowly, and then you hold for two. And what you're doing by going through this rhythm is that you're highly oxygenating your system and you're also slowing down your heart rate by slowing that pace at which the breathing is taking so place. Five, 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 two. Five, 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 two. And it, you, if you do that uh, for the space of about 90 seconds or so, that's all it needs, you can change your state from the sympathetic nervous system, which is fight or flight, across to the parasympathetic nervous system, which is rest and digest. And so I, I've done that for many years. Uh, more recently, Andrew Huberman. Are you familiar with Huberman? Yeah, he's, he's come out and he's been on lots of podcasts. He's talked about the physiological so side. you on the, the Huberman lab? Yeah, Huberman lab, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So if people want to go and check him out, he talks At about... Stanford. The, yes, that's right. He talks about the physiological side, which is where you breathe in twice. So you breathe in quite a long breath in, then a top up breath, which expands the sacs of the, the lungs to the lower down and then a big sigh out. Right. And by doing that, I think he found in a recent study, they studied lots of different types of breathing. And if you do that just for five minutes, you can see improvements in your heart rate variability as much as 24 hours later because it's something that you sort of simply do to relax. In fact, you can even see a dog doing this. If you, if you notice a dog sort of lying on a kitchen floor, occasionally it sort of breathes in, and then another breath, and then relaxes, like this. It's had a stressful day. <laughs> it's had a stressful day searching for bones or whatever. So, you know, we, we can benefit from that before we go on stage or before we go into to difficult situations too. Right. I think there's a lot of work, isn't there, now looking at breath work. Yeah. I, I think I did something with breathonics. <clears throat> Win Hof, I think, if we talk about you know uh, ice cold water and and breathing and what yeah. ice cold water would do to the breath. I had a strange experience actually, Richard. I mean, I speak for a living and have done for decades. And about, I reckon it was two months ago. I can't even remember where. I remember getting up and not being able to breathe, mm. and it was the strangest sensation. I'm not quite sure where it came from, and it took me by surprise. And I remember thinking. While I'm talking, I actually can't breathe. Yeah. And now I'm I'm not sure what to do because I need to carry on delivering, but I can't breathe. And I don't know where it came from. Yeah. And in some ways it was a lesson to me that however long you've been doing this or prepared you might be, I hope I was prepared, you need to do something before you go live. Yeah. yeah. And before you go on. So I mean, I don't know, what if I, was, I, was I being naive? Was it one of those things that I'm human and sometimes it can catch us all out? Mm. I can't really explain why it happened, but I just remember it so vividly. Yeah. I couldn't breathe, Richard. 
Yeah. Well, well, this is, I mean, you know, restriction on breathing is going to come uh, partly because of, it, it's going to be, you know, mental, emotional, but yep. it's also physical. And there, if there is tightness around your body, then there's a restriction on the breath. And so releasing that is, is important. I actually had a situation like that myself back in, I think it was like February of this year. That makes me feel better. We yeah, yeah, share, yeah. Share the experience. So, so yeah, it's, it's something that you always need to deal with uh, in some ways. Uh, but I was on stage uh, and at this event, there was maybe 200 people there. Uh, but I, I didn't realize that I was going to have any challenges until I got on the stage. In fact, I think what was going through my, my mind was about two days before I'd spoken to a thousand people. Right. So in my head, I thought, well, this is 200. This is going to be more straightforward. Easy. And it was a shorter session as well. I thought it's, it's fine. And so, but I got on the stage and the difference for me, what, what sort of triggered me slightly was that it was such a small room that everybody was really very, very close. Whereas when I spoke to a thousand people, the, the nearest person was like 20 meters away. Right. When I speak to these 200, there were people almost sitting on the stage. Uh, they were very close packed together, which made the room very hot because it was all these hot bodies there. And the lighting was very bright. And then the um, my laptop stopped working. <laughs> and so the slides wouldn't move. And then the AV team were trying to rescue the situation uh, because I had- and the I show has to go on. That's right. I I'd sent them a backup deck, but then I didn't realize that I had changed the slide since I sent them the backup deck. So I wasn't sure what was happening too. And so all of these things were culminating together where I was just sort of feeling a little bit claustrophobic. And I, much like you, I was thinking, okay, I'm, I'm not in charge now of my situation. Like the, the ocean has me. I'm not riding the ocean right. here. And, you know, fortunately in, in my sort of uh, events that I do, it's highly interactive. So as soon as I set the first activity, where I was like, okay, you're going to do this with a partner, off you go, you've got 30 seconds. I just thought, I now need to take control of my breath. That is the fastest way to change my state, to get back to a, a confident place. Well, I hope you're going to tell me how you do that <coughs> very quickly when 200 people are looking at you. Sure. Well, well the, the key thing to focus on, and this is, this is where people tend to get it wrong, is that I'm sure people have heard the phrase, if you're feeling nervous, take a deep breath. Yes. But it's the wrong advice. Right. And the reason it's the wrong advice is that if you're feeling tense about something, and then you take a breath in, you suddenly think like your eyeballs are going to explode no, because you've got, you've got this tension else. and you've got this air in the clavicular breathing that you're doing at the top of the chest. So it's the wrong advice. What you actually need to do is to breathe out, focus on the out breath. And this is important because we've got something in our breathing called elastic recoil. So what that means is if you push all the air out of your body and then you just relax, your body automatically breathes air back in. So right. that's the elastic recoil. And you can see this in sports. So if you see someone... Say you've got a golfer who's about to do the final putt on the 18th hole to win the championship and they're feeling a bit tense. You can just see them over the ball and they'll breathe out before they hit the ball. So they'll go and then they do it. Right. And also, I mean, my favorite sport is basketball. When someone's about to you know, shoot a, a free throw and it's, you know, the, the points are really close, you can see them. They're bouncing the ball and they're going and then they do the shot. What they don't do is go and then 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 throw the shot because There's the tension in the, the tension is going to be there so to ground yourself you need to focus on the out breath so so if there's one thing that people remember about this if you're feeling tense don't breathe in because it's going to make it worse you focus on the out breath and you focus uh, if you can if you're sort of sitting down in an environment where it's comfortable to do so in a meeting or something you place one hand on your stomach and you focus on pushing the air out from there you can do it silently i've done it in the middle of a big sales pitch where i thought this is not going well i'm feeling tense in my stomach right. so while the other people were talking and talking to me i just focused on my my stomach and focused on just breathing out from there let all the air out and then hold it for a couple of seconds then relax 
And instantly the air goes down to the stomach, not to the top of the lungs. And so you go into diaphragmatic breathing and your body says, hooray, this is great. I'm now back into good breathing that's going to keep me alive. And so uh, you, you get an instant reset. And so it's, it's worthwhile if you have more time. If I'm doing this backstage and I'm suddenly thinking, OK, I'm, I'm stressed. Yeah. Then what I might do is push it all out and make it audible. So I, I teach people to do this where you make the sound shh and then you make the sound get the air out so you push all the air out by going shh until, until you think you've got nothing left and then you go to truly get it out and then you relax and the air floods back in and your system feels better and then if you've got time you can do five 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 two breathing or, or whatever you need to do but it's the pushing the air out that creates the reset and relaxes the tension in the body and let's be honest most people just don't do this no, yeah, and and there lies the problem, and I'm I'm guilty of that. In, yeah. You know, having to do this on so many occasions in, in my professional life, but mm. you know, I'm I'm listening to you very carefully and actually thinking I've got to start to be much more deliberate about this in order to yeah. look after myself to make yeah. sure that I'm I'm about as fit for <laughs> fit for practice as it, as I can be. It reminds me actually that there was a friend of mine who uh, I think she was a bit like 35 at the time in good shape and uh, she wanted to go for a jog. We'd, we'd done a training event together and at the end of the day uh, she, she said I'm, I'm going to go for a jog before dinner and she went for a jog and then she came back and she'd pulled muscles in her leg and uh, I said my first question was to her didn't you stretch before you went? She said, no, of course, of course I didn't stretch. I've been standing up all day. I'm in relatively good condition. I thought, you know, I don't need to stretch. I've been, you know, up and about and, and so Famous on. last words. But yeah, but you, you use your muscles differently when you're running than mm. when you're standing and walking. And the same goes with when you are speaking in front of a large audience. You're, you're using your voice and your, your gestures, your body differently than you are when you're just sitting down. It is a different, different physical skill. So it makes sense to warm yourself up for it. And if you're having to do a lot of uh, talks, then you can get a routine around it and the great thing about a routine is your body and your mind says oh yeah I did this routine before at that event that went well so I'm getting ready to do something that goes well and so you can get into a positive uh, rhythm of it that's almost like anchoring isn't it into yeah. a positive experience I mean there is so much I would love to talk to you about and I'm so glad that we've actually had a very tangible practical conversation about what you can do before uh, and what you can do during mm. because I think many people listening to this at some point maybe at a regular point, are going to have to make some form of presentation to yeah. one, to many, yeah. whatever it might be. Tell us a little bit about your new book, Lift Your Impact. There it is, wonderfully on the screen, and, and, and here it is uh, as well. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the book. Uh, so so th this book was written in reaction to, to the big change that's happened yes. in requests for uh, training that we've seen from organisations worldwide over yeah. the last few years. So I, I wrote another book going back in 2018 that was solely focused on communication and really around presentations. With, with this book, uh, what I found is that requests have changed based on three things. Right. So since the beginning of the pandemic, we noticed a lot more people asking about mindsets for general health and well-being of dealing with the stress mm -hmm. of life and the uncertainty of the whole situation. Yeah. It was been a microscope through. on that, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, and I think that the lack of uh, having as much in-person communication and contact that, that, that we used to have, there's so much virtual working now, there's a lot more in terms of sort of anxiety and stress around in-person communication. So I thought I really want to help people out with mindset. Okay. The second piece was the shift in how people were asking us to help them with communication. It went from helping them with public speaking, which was sort of number one uh, then. And then the number one request suddenly became, we're in a lot of conflict with each other. We keep on disagreeing with each other. Mm -hmm. We're disagreeing with people outside of our organization. And there's been this big shift 
shift. I saw a statistic around it. I forget the exact number, but we've become much less amicable with each other. Well, the world feels very polarised right now, Richard. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can see that in politics. It's also happening in the workplace where people, they're not standing around a a, a coffee machine or a water cooler as often as they would have been with each other. So there's less connection with each other. So people asked us, you know, can you help us get a deeper, more positive connection with each other so we can more positively influence each other uh, one-to-one? And the last piece that came out a lot with so many people just wanting more purpose, feeling that, that you know, what they used to do from 2019 and, and before that was they would go to a big sort of steel and glass building and just get on with whatever the organisation was doing. Right. And then they'd expend, you know, 90 minutes to drive there, 90 minutes to drive back. And then people sat with themselves during the lockdown thinking, why am I even doing that? What is, what is the purpose of this? And there was an uptick of, it was something like 51% more people than usual who were leaving the workplace going to start their own business with that sense of, I want to do something I believe in. Yes. And so I wanted to write this book, whether people are in an organization or they're an entrepreneur or they're a leader of some kind, to give them that opportunity to be a rock in the storm, so working on their mindset, then be able to influence the people around them to move in a positive direction with them towards some goals. But then also think about how do you make lasting change? How do you set a goal and really genuinely achieve it? What is that all about? How do you be a change maker? How can you be a successful entrepreneur or leader? And so I wanted to put all those tools together because I hadn't actually seen a book that did all three. You can get a book on mindset or a book on communication or so on, but but you couldn't really get a book that would take you through everything. So, so I wrote this as a workbook so people take part uh, as they're going through and they really make the journey their own so they, they can get that sort of ultimate uh, transformation that they're looking for and I know on the on the back cover you talk about the power of lift and it talks about lifting values vision potential storytelling stakeholders message presence performance and momentum mm. so there's a lot here when is it available uh, so it, it comes out officially on May the 2nd. There's going to be an ebook version, audio book, and the hardback. I'm told at this point there's a bit of a uh, paper shortage, so we don't know exactly if Who the knew? hardback will be out uh, right then. But it will be May the 2nd onwards, and people can pre-order it, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever they want to get it from. Gotcha. Now, again, we've only scratched the surface. It's lovely to have you back in the studio and, and on the show. How do people get in touch with you so they can carry on the conversation or get you in to help them and their teams? So, uh, first of all, if people want to know more about the book they can go to liftyourimpact.com right. and there's lots of information there about the book i'll put this in the show notes as well richard great and then uh, ukbodytalk.com is uh, the main place that people can come and find us uh, with you know everything that we do in terms of communication training uh, and lastly if they want to find me i'm on linkedin and on instagram brilliant final question what's next for you uh, so I think what, what's next for me is something I'm really proud of is uh, I've built out of this book the Lift Your Impact Retreat, which is where people can in, uh, go right. through the t- entire experience in the space of uh, sort of three and a half uh, days where they go through a complete life revolution of what do they need to do in terms of their mindset, their influence and transforming their future uh, to, to move their world in a more positive direction. And uh, I've been loving putting it together. And yeah. the last one that we ran, ran was fabulous. So that's really like the next stage of uh, coaching people for me good to hear Richard listen thanks for being an absolute superstar coming into the wonderful new studio it is fabulous that is the leadership enigma and I hope that you'll stay in touch and continue to talk to us yeah many thanks take great care thanks very much join us again next week for more tips and strategies on the leadership enigma we'd love to hear your comments on today's show as well as suggestions for future topics and guests get in touch with your host on LinkedIn or visit the dedicated website www leadersenigma.com powered by transform performance international 
where you can access our exclusive learning, including books, videos, bonus content, assessments, and more. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on all your major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening.